Welcome to the Building Confidence Podcast, brought to you today by KPMG, where we explore a range of issues which impact on stakeholder confidence in governance, corporate reporting and audit. I'm Phil Smart, Client Lead Partner here at KPMG in the UK, and I'm your host for this episode. Today, I want to explore culture, how this can be measured and what it means for boards. Many of you will be familiar with the Peter Drucker quote saying, culture eats strategy for breakfast. And that's exactly why culture has to start in the boardroom. I'm joined today by Una Harper, our independent non-executive director, who has over 30 years experience in the boardroom, including 14 years in CEO roles in the private, public and third sectors. Una is going to help us uncover what culture is, how it's measured and what the implications are for corporate reporting and assurance. Welcome, Una, and thank you for joining us today. Hi, Phil. It's great to be here. Thank you for inviting me. So, Una, I'd like to kick off our discussion today with your views on culture and just why is it so important? Well, Phil, for me, there are three reasons why culture matters. Reputation, strategy and increasingly ESG. But before I go into any detail on those, let me give you my own view of culture. The culture of any organisation grows out of the decisions and behaviours of each and every one of us the people who make up the organisation. Culture depends on people. We all adapt our behaviour and our decisions as well every day in response to the changing needs and expectations of everyone around us and especially the tone from the top. So culture is a living, breathing, dynamic thing and essentially it is human centred. It's about our humanity and it depends on so many small acts, listening, asking great questions, sharing information, encouraging others, saying thank you and please. And those little tiny acts by many people every day help us retain and strengthen a healthy culture. So coming back to the three reasons why culture matters, culture underpins our reputation. It's therefore a reputational risk. It's also an opportunity for all organisations to attract customers for their brand, for their market differentiation to attract talent. But you've only got to pick up the newspapers almost every day to see examples of how the risks of culture damage reputation and can wipe huge value off the share price because someone somewhere in their organisation did something that damaged their reputation. And at its worst, as we've seen in the last decade, it wipes out organisations completely. Culture is also a significant execution risk for strategy. I was that young CEO trying to deliver a strategy, realising eventually it wasn't going to happen if I didn't have people behaving consistently with the strategic goals. We needed culture goals. And I recall a bank just after the global financial crisis announcing with great pride publicly it was now going to be consumer focused. This was their new strategy. And we all knew that their culture had become one based on fear. But the strategy didn't include anything like training or changes to remuneration to encourage a customer centric culture. Not surprisingly, the strategy failed. So, as you said, culture certainly is 
strategy for breakfast. So nowadays, though, we have a big focus on ESG, and if it's to be more than a bit of green and pink washing, we need to do something about it. It's one of the biggest changes I've seen in corporate governance in the last few decades. People no longer want to work with businesses if they don't believe in their commitment to ESG. By the way, I think it's a dreadful acronym for what essentially is good decision making for the three P's, people, planet and profit. If we want to ensure we achieve our strategic goals for ESG, our culture absolutely has to develop from how we treat others within the organisations to how we treat our suppliers, our customers and our clients and the communities around us and how our organisation and all of our stakeholders impact the planet and society. And increasingly, our stakeholders need to know that we can and will deliver on our commitments. So if we're making ESG strategies and commitments, we're going to need a culture that will enable us to achieve those goals. And um, we need to evidence that to our stakeholders. In fact, evidence of that came recently. I don't know if you recall that Aviva AGM meeting where the CEO, Amanda Blank, um, was on the receiving end of some rather sexist comments from some individual investors. It's not a great example of the behaviour of individual investors and the culture perhaps they were representing, but the positive outcome was that the chair of Aviva called out the unacceptable behaviour immediately. It was clear that the tone was being set very clearly from the top of the business. And it left everyone, I think, with no doubt that at Aviva, a culture of speaking out against poor behaviour and supporting gender diversity, as well as no doubt all other diversities, is really supported and lived from the chair down. So it's a great example of one of my core views, which is, and you've said it too, a healthy culture starts in the boardroom and it is lived every day in the experiences of everyone in the business. Absolutely, Una. Um, you mentioned that, that culture underpins an organisation's reputation. So, so what can boards do to, to make sure that the organisation's culture will do exactly that and protect the reputation and enable the organisation to succeed in, in achieving its goals? It's a great question, Phil. I've been asking this question for decades, and particularly when I first was asked to think about becoming a non-exec. How do you sleep on a board when you're on a board, knowing that at any moment, 10% of your people are probably misbehaving and any one of those could bring down your reputation? Luckily, 10 years ago, I got asked to uh, I got invited to lead a piece of work to ask over 60 chairs and company directors just this question and to develop a guide for boards on how they govern culture. Back then, just after the global financial crisis, most businesses only realised they had a problem with their culture just before it hit the press. Few boards got any information about culture. So they had no way of catching issues that might have been emerging in the business before they became serious. So I'd been asked by the Lord Mayor to, re, to join a small group to rebuild trust and integrity in the city, um, essentially the financial services. And I led that work 
on how boards govern culture. And we later reviewed and extended that work for the Financial Reporting Council and prepared a guide to governing culture for all UK boards in any sector. And I've been using that guide with several boards over the last few years. But the good news is there really only are six areas where the board needs to be vigilant so we can break it down into manageable parts. The first two are the tone from the top and we can break that down into two things, the purpose and values and the strategy. What do I mean by that? Well, it's clear that successful businesses with successful cultures have inspiring purposes and values. It's no good saying our purpose is to make money or some version of that. As John Kay would say, profit is no more the purpose of business than breezing is the purpose of life. The purpose of our business is to serve society in some way to provide goods and services at prices they can afford. But we need to have that in an inspiring way. So our people are really motivated to give up their best um, and the values, of course. Why do I put strategy there? Because I think, as I've indicated, it, when the board is asked to agree a strategy, whatever it's for, whether it's a strategy for the whole business or a strategy for part of the business, we often don't think about, well, what are the behaviours we're going to need from people in order to deliver the strategy? Um, and what are the risks? As a board, I think at the point of agreeing a strategy as well, I think boards need to ask the executive, how are you going to assure us that you've got the culture goals there and that you're delivering them? So what strategy do you have for the culture as well as for the business results? And how are you going to manage them? And what are you going to do when things aren't working? So I think those two are really tetting the tone from the top. The next three areas for vigilance are leadership, decision making and reward. And these are not just the board leading and deciding and rewarding. This is the whole business. It's how do we make sure that everyone in the business promotes and embodies the culture and values and purpose that we have agreed in the boardroom? Are we attracting and retaining leaders who have the ethical fitness to lead and succeed with embodying this culture and values we say is so important because if any one of those people steps out it undermines trust in the firm and it undermines people's sense that it matters that they behave in the way that the organization expects for me decision making is one of the most important i think people forget that that when you look back over the last 20 years of corporate failure or organizations of any kind it's little act it's little it's it's little and it's not always by the most senior people you may take a great decision in the boardroom but it takes one person somewhere to do something and that's a decision the decision by a procurement person to save money by reducing the standard of what they're buying and to introduce a risk say into a food product these decisions are critical but we can do a lot as boards we can um, help boards have frameworks for these decisions uh, like codes of conduct and those codes of conduct in the, in the beginning were rules based and now we have codes of conduct particularly kpmgs which is um, a, a really 
um, valued by the Institute of Business Ethics now because it's moved from being rules based to being enabling and helping people make good ethical decisions. So giving guidance to people is really important and from the board making sure that that is in place. And the third area is reward. And this probably is one of the fastest and easiest ways, but which undermines behaviour all the time, is what does our remuneration and bonus system reward? Are we rewarding and encouraging the behaviours we need to succeed? And it's often not just in the salary system, it's in the bonuses, it's in all kinds of little ways that we're rewarding um, by acknowledging people, giving them awards, saying thank you or not. So it's rewarding and encouraging. And as a non-exec in government, I learned you couldn't reward with remuneration, but you could reward with all these other ways. So being very vigilant as to how the culture rewards the behaviours that you want or the behaviours you don't want. So those are the three leadership, decision making and reward. And then the last, which is sort of in some ways the final day job of any board is assurance. What evidence do we have that our culture is moving in the right direction? How can we assure our stakeholders of that, our investors, our regulators? How do we compare with the competitors? Are we differentiating ourselves? How do we evidence that? How can we best assure our suppliers that so they stick with us or our colleagues and we keep the best people or our customers so they buy from us? So that's it really. We need we need to be able to inspire our people with our purpose and values and all our stakeholders, build the culture ambition into the business strategy, embody and promote the culture in all our behaviours from the very top, help people guide their decision making to ensure people, planet and profit are all factored in and reward and encourage the best behaviours gathering the metrics finally to assure stakeholders we care and we will deliver. Okay, so given this is such a vital area, um, in your opinion, are boards getting the information they need when it comes to culture? Probably not. It's, it's probably the hardest area for boards to get useful information. And I put the emphasis on useful. I'll come back to that. Margaret Heffernan's latest book is entitled Beyond Measure, and I think she has a point. For all the reasons I've outlined, um, there isn't one bottom line measure, not just profit, there's everything. There's so many ways that a poor culture shows up. But there's not just one that we can use to compare culture between different organisations. Boards and executives use three types of measures broadly. Perceptions about values, measures of behaviours and outcomes, and dashboards of indicators of culture. Perceptions of values are challenging because they're per perceptions, they're subjective. Um, surveys that ask questions about values, do the people around you live the values, only give people's perceptions, which depends on what they had happened to them yesterday or on their way to work. Um, I mean, they're useful over, over the long term and you can see good trends and you've got a lot of um, people in your sample. But uh, people learn to play the game 
um, one risk director said to me, well, if you give them ice cream and jelly the day before, you get better results. Um, so it's not always a great indicator of culture, but it, it can give you some good indications. So I wouldn't dismiss it because if you haven't got good people engagement surveys and you're not doing 360 feedback around values, then you know you haven't got started on understanding your culture. The bigger issue though that I have with measuring values is that values are only relational. Who and what you value and how you value them is as important as what the values are. So often people would talk about the values and yes, they'll say we all live them, but they are, they're in the top 10% of the organisation and they treat each other really well. But how do they treat everyone else? Um, so many companies are now seeking to measure behaviours and the outcomes of those behaviours, such as performance targets um, for diversity and inclusion and pay gaps, speak up hotlines, whistleblowing, health and safety data. And so what happens is that you move from measuring just a few behaviours or outcomes to then dashboards, and these can run to dozens of pages. Because as I've said with culture, one of the difficulties is it's no good just looking at the, let's take um, diversity inclusion data, just at the aggregate level for the business. The board does need to see, well, are there outliers and where are we where is the organisation not getting it right? So you can challenge the executive effectively. And we have now emerging some very sophisticated tools for measuring behaviour. So I think one of the difficulties, and I don't want to suggest it's all difficulties, but there are reasons why some of these are not so easy, is that because with all those pages, I think we need cadres of, of really good culture scientists in a way who can interpret this data and help the executive understand what is going wrong and help spot the emerging issues and certainly I'm, I'm impressed by the way some companies are getting much better at that to spot where risks are emerging by combining data from lots of different parts of the organization and then spotting that things are going out of line in several areas at once in relation to one bit of the business and then you can start doing the work. Personally, I find it most helpful in the boardroom to start with the outcomes of a healthy culture. As I said, such as are we achieving our diversity and inclusion goals? Um, and measures of uh, indicators of a healthy culture, such like such as talent attrition, staff turnover, days off sick, reasons given for leaving or reasons given for um, being off sick and and then asking the, the exec as I've said you know what what is the root cause analysis why are we not moving the dial on this particular metric but they are only metrics they do indicate you know is it a safe place do people feel included can they speak up and if those things aren't present then probably other things aren't getting dealt with either you just don't know which is why some of the um, the whistleblowing and speak up lines are helpful up to a point. But again, you need comparative data um, within the business and, and across the sector. But as I'd say, what I'd also say is I think it's important to caution again against the knee jerk reaction that when things aren't right, that you focus on the behaviour of the individuals rather than the behaviour of the organisation that shape the culture 
which is why I emphasised the leadership, the guiding of decision making um, and the reward, because these things really shape the culture and those together with the stewardship points about inspiring purpose. You know, if you haven't got those in place, you can't really blame individuals for not behaving well. And, and what do you think are the, the broader implications for, for corporate re reporting in this area? Well, um, it's gone, got a, come a really long way in this last 10 years in that we do have corporate reporting on culture. We now also have some real consistent metrics, um, the World Economic Forum metrics, uh, TCEFD, which is the culture financial disclosure, sorry, carbon financial disclosure and the biodiversity um, financial disclosures. These are all good, good metrics and they're all a start. But as we've seen with metrics, you, you get the metrics, you learn how to make them look better because um, none of them are pure, um, pure metrics. I'm a mathematician economist, so, you know, I do have a bit of a bias. I'd, I'd love pure numbers, but you can't get pure numbers. But they do get a board to start and say, well, why is this not getting better? And so I think it's a great starting place. But if as a board you really are committed on the agenda of ESG, obviously the board's job is the G and governing it. But you have to have goals for ENS and you have to make sure that you are actually moving the dial. And that's where I think all I've been saying about culture really matters. I think the corporate reporting will continue to develop and increasingly will need to be assured. And someone's going to have to assure that whether that is um, you guys or many of the consultancies out there that have been working with companies for a long time, helping them assure their um, culture as well as their environmental and social goals. So I think we are on a journey here and but it's a journey we don't have to move an awful lot faster. Um, just to illustrate, maybe it'd be helpful to illustrate that, Phil. What I saw in the coal industry, which is where I started work, over 20 years from when the Aberfan disaster start, happened in the 60s, where a huge pile of rock that was waste from the coal mine slipped onto a school and killed all those children. That led the coal industry to spend a huge amount of money making sure all the coal tips were safe. Fast forward another decade, and it wasn't just that they needed to be safe. These were massive eyesores, a huge mountains of rock. They were also huge polluters of watercourses, and the air quality was really damaged by the lorries that dumped new rock on top every day. And something needed to be done. And what happened was they got in landscape, art, um, landscape contractors, and they knocked down these big tips and rebuilt them with you know, nice amenity, visual and social amenity so that everyone could enjoy the space and build trees and lakes and all of that. So that was the need to deal with the simple issues of um, pollution. But then with the new technology emerging, they changed their business model. 
What they did was they used the new technology for cutting the coal face and the new computer technology that they had right down there to only cut the coal and leave the rock behind. So now the business model changed again. The money was all going into the tech, not as much money, and you didn't have to employ all those people on the surface and destroy everything on the surface by dumping masses of rock. So you see the evolution from dealing with a safety issue to dealing with environmental issues to then actually removing the issue completely. And I think when we tackle ESG, we have to we have to do all three, but we can't afford to wait 20 years. We now have to look at ESG. We look at the issues for safety, of course. Then we have to look at the pollution, the carbon, the social justice issues, as well as the carbon climate justice issues. And then we have to rethink our business model. And some companies are looking forward like that and now saying, actually, let's redo the business model now because we can't afford to go through those interim stages. And that's where I think the governance of the business is so important. This is the role of the board to stand back and look at that. And your question was about reporting. But I think what's useful about what we have so far is it's the reporting that enable us to get to the first step. We don't have time. We need to get now to the end as well. So I think companies have a big part to play in both social justice and climate justice. And culture is a critical for that because we don't, those of us of our generation, we don't really we don't necessarily see it in the way that the younger people do. And we're all going to have to work together to innovate, uh, to collaborate, to look radically at what we're doing and say we can do this really a lot better. And that requires a culture that is not command and control from the top, but is a very collaborative, innovative, respectful, inclusive culture where people, and I know your, your guys are really proud, aren't you, um, at the big conference for all your, all your staff, thousands of people, and some young person had the courage to speak up and say, I don't understand why we're taking on this client. That's the kind of thing we want everyone to know, that they can speak up. And when they speak up, then we'll all get better decisions made and we will all understand them better and it'll improve decision making for everyone and we'll have a much more healthy culture as a result. Thanks Una uh, and growing up in the coal fields of South Yorkshire you, uh, you couldn't have come up with a better example uh, for me there. Um, we're, we're almost out of time now but before I let you go what would be your advice on how boards can improve their approach to culture in future? Well first of all get the information you need and also make sure it's relevant, contextualized for your role and interpreted for you as a board. So not the pack the exec should be getting. Make sure that it includes every part of the business, no matter how junior or senior, whether people are contracted or outsourced, because all of them are branded with your organization's brand. And if we really want to tackle ESG, once we've got the information, we need to ask ourselves some quite fundamental questions about the root causes of things that, you know, we're not achieving and how we can actually change our business model if necessary and change our culture so that we can meet the expectations of society 
as well as of our suppliers and customers and all other stakeholders in the future. Well, unfortunately, that's all we have time for in today's podcast. Una, thank you so much for, for sharing your thoughts. It, it's been really great to hear your take on, on what's clearly a really important topic. I think my, my key takeaways from, from what we've covered today are, are firstly, culture is absolutely critical uh, if companies want to achieve their strategy, and, and that's really got to start in the boardroom. Um, I think if businesses need to have the right culture and governance to deliver on, on their ESG commitments, and, and, and we're clearly seeing that as being a, a really important uh, piece of communication and, and uh, that, that can be demonstrated to, to stakeholders. And finally, there's a lot of metrics that a company can disclose uh, around culture, but they need to be able to demonstrate that the choices and the changes of, that they've made as a result of those metrics that they can really show that they've got a culture which is able to respond um, to, to, to the changes that are necessary and, and to the external environment. So thank you very much once again, Una. Thank you, it's been a pleasure. We have many more guests in future episodes who are passionate about good governance. So please do subscribe to our pod podcast to get alerted for when new episodes are published. Thank you and goodbye for now.